Welcome back, Rocky Road family. I'm very excited to join a guest tonight who has a story that is just both horrifying and amazing, to be very honest. Um, I am here alone today. Miss Mandy had uh, a birthday dinner, so happy birthday, Mandy. This is going to be after the fact, but it's just me and my guest tonight, and we're really excited to dive into um, what could potentially be some heavy stuff, but also a really exciting conversation. So I would love to have my guest introduce herself. So good evening. Hello. Who are you, and what are we going to talk about? Good evening. My name is Charlene Madden. I'm coming to you virtually from beautiful British Columbia, Canada. Um, and it is such an honor and a privilege to be here and to speak to everybody. Um, happy birthday, Mandy. I wish you would have been here. Um, I'm sure I will get the opportunity to meet you, but um, I'm coming in today just to speak to you about hope. Um, as you were saying, my story uh, isn't necessarily, uh, didn't start out as the best story, but chapters evolve in my life now is absolutely amazing. So I'm just coming in to let everybody know that you're one decision away and you never know what moment's going to change your life. And uh, I'm going to share my story so you get to hear the moment that changed my life. So yes, absolutely. Um, so to let the listeners know, I know a, a little bit about um, Charlene's backstory. Um, she and I share something in common, which people don't ever want to share in common, is that we both were in a violent relationship. And so we might dig into that a little bit later. Um, but I want to hear, Charlene, you said the moment that changed your life. So tell us about that one moment. Um, I was two days away from ending my life. Um, I had spent 40, almost 45 years of my life in such a dark, painful place. And I had kind of made a decision that um, I was done. I was done trying to, you know, keep myself afloat when I realized I was doing it for everybody else and not for myself. Mm. Um, and I just didn't have the energy anymore to keep fighting for that. And I set a date and um, two days before that date happened, I attended a workshop. It was a woman's workshop that uh, a coworker invited me too. And I didn't want to go, but I went there to support her, which is what I always did. I always looked after everybody else. Mm -hmm. And um, I went to that workshop and I heard three absolutely amazing stories of people who had gone through some of the same struggles that I had gone through. And it kind of brought a realization. I think we always know that we're not the only ones who go through what we go through. We know that in the big scheme of things. But everybody else's experiences seem so outside of our realm mm -hmm. and to sit there and listen to these people pour their hearts and their stories out. It just completely connected with me and it brought me back to the one thing that I had been so far away from. And that was my purpose. Um, I had always wanted to help people um, ever since I was a little girl that had been, you know, I always wanted to tell other people's stories. I wanted to save everyone mm -hmm. because no one had stepped in to save me as a child. And those people that were there, they were telling their stories and they didn't know at that moment they were saving my life, but they did. And I made a decision that day after hearing those stories that, you know what, I'm not alone. Other people have gone through this, these experiences and they've risen above it. And you know what, if they can do it, so can I. And I found that such a powerful moment, just the, when you understand that, you know, you're not alone 
because sometimes we feel so alone. So for me, that moment just absolutely changed my life. That sounds very empowering. And just to walk, I can't imagine the state of your your mind and your emotions when you walked into that workshop and then when you walked out. Mm-hmm. It, you were a different person. Oh, yeah. Like when I got, when I pulled into the parking lot, um, I got out of my SUV and I glanced into the back seat and laying on the floor was my hunting rifle and the bullets. Mm-hmm. And that was a Saturday morning. And Monday morning, I was driving up into the mountains to shoot myself. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of was like, I just got to get through two more days. Mm. So that was my mentality when I walked in there was, I just got to get through two more days. Mm-hmm. And when I walked out, I was like, I've got so many more days ahead of me because I chose that I wanted to live instead of I wanted to die. So it was Mm -hmm. amazing. I'm curious though. You said you didn't want to go. What made you put into it? (laughs) Um, When my coworker approached me, she actually approached me two weeks before the event and, and she said, Hey, there's this woman's workshop. Would you like to come with me? And at that point I'd already made my decision and my life. So I was like, yeah, no, like that is the last place I want to be. Like I'm right, you have 48 hours. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I am tired. Yeah, exactly. I got, that's two days of my life that is only, you know, I'm never going to get back. So, but I was like, I'm tired of pretending that I'm okay. I don't think I have it in me to spend two more days pretending I'm okay. And she looked at me and she said, please, I really want to go, but I don't want to go by myself. Oh, and, and that that, that, it, that, that was my kryptonite right because I was like again I was always put the put your oxygen mask on everyone else first right oh. like take care of everyone else and don't worry about yourself mm-hmm. you know maybe that was the little martyrdom in me because that's what I grew up with right it was like mm-hmm. don't worry about everybody else's needs don't worry about your own and mm-hmm. um so that's what I did I was like okay fine I will go because I knew she needed to go Right. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe I was projecting a little bit of myself on her, you know, thinking, wow, this is a woman who's who's really insecure. She's got low self-esteem. She really needs to go to this event. It could change her life. Mm-hmm. Not knowing that I was that same person that I was thinking that she was and that it was, in fact, my life that was going to be changed. That's brilliant. And I think, again, knowing part of your story that we're going to rewind to share with our listeners, I, I think from where I sit, it's possible that you worry so much about other people because no one worried about you. And yeah. you yeah. said, I have to figure it out myself. And so I don't want other people to have to figure it out themselves. I have to help them because who else is going to? That's right. So um, kind of in that vein, let's rewind a little bit. And there is a lot in your past that's very, very, very difficult. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of things that could have led you to that decision which I and so many other people are so glad that you turned away from and you made a different decision to live and to thrive and to help others. Um, but where, what are a couple of the key, um, not moments, but the, the key events that brought you to feeling like you had no hope? Um, I grew up in a pretty dysfunctional home. Um, at the age of three and a half, I was placed in the care of my grandparents uh, my parents had separated. My father was a really violent alcoholic and, um, uh, going to live with my grandparents should have been a great 
life for me. Um, my grandmother was an amazing woman, super strong, very independent. I always say she was really far ahead of her time. Uh, she believed that women should be independent, get a good education, uh, make their own money, don't depend on a man. That was, you know, something that was drilled into my head. And um, and as wonderful as my grandmother was, um, my grandfather was the monster in the house. Um, he was a pedophile. So mm. at the age of just after three and a half, um, both my sister and I, my sister was four years older than myself. Um, we started experiencing sexual abuse at his hands and it was almost a weekly occurrence. Uh, every Monday night, my grandma went to bingo and that was the night that we were left alone in the house with him and mm. he took advantage of that situation. So we went through this for nine, just over nine years. And then finally everything came out. Uh, my sister basically had a nervous breakdown because the abuse she was experiencing uh, was worse than mine. And she was actually afraid she was gonna become impregnated by my grandfather. She was 16. Oh, wow. And um, so she had a nervous breakdown, everything came out. And this family that I had kept this silence for, um, because I was terrified that if I said anything, I was going to get ripped away from my grandmother, who had been the only stability I'd had in my life. Mm. Um, and here it was, the, the family that I clung to was now being ripped apart. Uh, my grandfather was arrested. Um, my grandparents got divorced. We ended up, you know, moving uh, into low-income housing and in, in the town that we lived in. And um, my whole life changed. And so I held on to this, uh, the shame, you know, from, you know, growing up in a small town, we grew up, the town was 2,500 people. So, you know, wow. you fart. yeah, you fart and your neighbor knows, right? <laughs> like there's, there's no keeping. I've never secret. heard that one. <laughs> <laughs> and, good. you know, and it was, it was just a situation where everybody knew what had happened. So there was no escaping the stigma that I held on to. And, um, you know, I remember when it all came out and we went to a social worker's office, we got pulled in and I had to sit through this interview and answer these questions. And I remember in my mind thinking, you know, I'm, I'm 12, just over 12 and a half and thinking, I'm not going to say everything that happened because I had shame. I had fear. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, I basically said what I had to say and nothing more. And I remember the social worker coming around and patting me on the back. And like, I, I was actually was thinking about this because I'm in the process of writing my, my book. And she was this huge woman. Like she was a, this giant of a woman. And she came around and was patting me on the back. And she said, don't worry, Charlene. I just want you to know everything's going to be okay. Hmm. And I remember at 12 thinking, what is that supposed to mean? Like, I don't know what okay is supposed to look like, because at this point in my life, nothing's been okay. Mm -hmm. And at, at three, three and a half, I believe you said, right? Mm -hmm. that's, that's the time when relationship building is the most important because you are learning what's quote unquote normal, I hate the word normal, by the way, but mm -hmm. what's, what's acceptable basically. And you right. learn the who you can trust and who you can depend on and what the give and take and reciprocity and that didn't happen mm -hmm. with one of the more important what was supposed to be a very important relationship with you and 
that's an excellent point is what, what is okay even look like? Absolutely. You can't even fathom it. No. Yeah. Because I mean, I had never felt, I never grew up with that foundation, that stability. So everything to me was always this balancing act. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I talked about hypervigilance became such a normal thing for me because that's how I lived my life. Every day I was hypervigilant of, you know, how being around my grandfather, the mood that my grandmother was in because she was such a force of nature. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just became this hypervigilant child and it just, you know, mm-hmm. that carries on because that's what you learn to use as a, as a coping mechanism. Absolutely. And so I went into high school really unstable. Um, mm-hmm. We didn't have any counseling. And I mean, this is the early eight, well, I guess early to mid eighties when this came out, I think it was 1984. Um, mm-hmm. That counseling wasn't really a thing. And my grandmother being really old school was the type that you just put your head down and you get through it. Like, let's mm-hmm. just move on with things, you know, like it won't happen or it didn't happen if we just ignore it. So that's kind of what we did. We just pretended that life was normal, but inside it wasn't normal. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know, again, what normal was supposed to be. So I go into high school. And I mean, that's a transitionary period for anyone going into high school, being a teenager. And I just am searching to fit in. I just want to belong. Number one, I wanted to be normal, as you were saying, what is normal. But I just wanted to not be the person that was the... Um, child that no one wanted, right? Whose parents didn't Mm -hmm. want her. I didn't want to be the child that was the sexual abuse victim. I was tired of having all of these labels attached to me. I just wanted to be like everybody else. So Mm -hmm. I quickly found a a social group where I could be like everybody else. You know, we were drinking and, and smoking marijuana because that was a coping mechanism because all I was trying to do was find a way to numb these emotions that I had no way of dealing with. And when that didn't, wasn't enough, I turned to cutting Mm -hmm. as a, as an outlet for the emotional pain. And, and it was just this relief of if the physical pain could just overtake the emotional pain for just a little bit, life was great. Mm -hmm. And then I started, I, I went into grade 10 and I started writing. I realized that, you know, I mean, I'd always been good in school and always wanted to go into journalism and writing. And so I took writing as an outlet for my emotions and I started writing and I was, uh, you know, I was pouring all of my emotions out onto the page. And I always said that I was either pouring out blood by cutting mm-hmm. or I was pouring ink out onto the paper. Those became my two coping mechanisms. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you're writing really dark and depressing and, you know, suicidal and violent stuff on paper, it draws attention. And yeah. my teacher brought me into the guidance counselor's office who had called a school psychologist in and they said they wanted to do an assessment on me that they were kind of worried about where I was at. And mm-hmm. so I spent four hours with this school psychologist answering questions which was really the last thing I wanted to do because I was just trying to pretend that nothing had happened. Mm -hmm. And after four hours, the school psychologist said, I just want you to know, Charlene, we're diagnosing you as manic depressive bipolar. And I'm sitting like, what the heck does that mean? (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, okay, again, this is the eighties. There was no Google. I couldn't pull out my cell phone and see what that means. 
And I wasn't going to the school library to pull out a book on being crazy is what I thought. And so I just, I sat there with this kind of, okay, like, I don't know what that's supposed to mean. It's just a label. Yeah. It's just a, exactly. But another label for me mm-hmm. at that point. So, but she looked across the desk and she said, but I just want you to know that you're going to be okay. There it is again. And I'm like, really? So now I'm getting mad because now I've got another adult telling me that I'm going to be okay. And I'm thinking, please don't make promises that you can't keep because I'm tired of people in my life doing that, right? All Mm -hmm. these adults keep telling me I'm going to be okay. No one's making sure that I'm okay. Mm. And she said, I just want you to know we're here for you. Book an appointment if you need to come and talk. And that was it. And I walked it. No No follow-up. No follow-up. So to me, it was just... It was a the, it just that flavor again of the you're gonna be okay, no follow-up. It was the same, you know, with the social worker, now the school psychologist. And I was like, okay, you know what? I just need to do what my grandma taught me to do. I just need to put my head down and I just need to pretend that I'm okay. Because mm-hmm. as long as I pretend that I'm okay, everyone will leave me alone and I won't have to keep reliving this because I was reliving it enough. Mm-hmm. I didn't need to relive it with someone else. So I just put my head down and I focused on getting through school and I graduated high school and all I could think about was moving. I wanted to get away from where I had lived, the small town I grew up in. I wanted to go somewhere where there was lots of people and no one would know who I was because then Mm -hmm. I could just blend in and just be another face in the crowd. Mm -hmm. And so I moved away, moved to another uh, uh, city about two and a half hours from where I grew up and I moved with my high school sweetheart Mm. and um, we ended up, you know, moving in together and deciding we were going to start this incredible life together and have a family. And when I was 21, um, I had my first daughter Mm. and I was so excited because I thought, all right, now's my opportunity to break this cycle. Mm -hmm. You know, even back then I was thinking, I want to fix this. I want to be the good mom that I never had growing up. Mm-hmm. And I had the best of intentions. The only problem was I didn't have the tools to be that good mom because I hadn't dealt with all of the stuff that I had brought along with me. Mm-hmm. Because what I learned was you can move away, but you're still taking your baggage with you. Mm-hmm. And that's all I did. I just took my baggage to a different location. I hadn't done anything to deal with what I had gone through in my life. I just thought if I ignored it, it would go away. Mm-hmm. And we all know that doesn't work. It's just well, like. I mean, so you learned from your grandmother, which I have a question. Is your grandmother still living? She's passed away. I'm, I'm sorry. She sounds like a force of nature. And she, was, yeah. she really, I, I was going to ask if she's still living, if I could talk to her because just <laughs> going into her experience and mm-hmm. how, how she was able to maintain, she sounds like a very strong person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she sounds like a very impactful person to you. And she, that must have been a very difficult loss to handle. And I'm mm-hmm. there's, we talk about grief all the time. There's no positive way to say, I'm sorry for your loss. Cause mm-hmm. everyone hates that phrase. Yeah. Um, but her, her force is living on in you. And I can see that you have Mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, I just met you, but you have things that you've said that make me think that she's in you. (laughs) Um, I I mean, I I am absolutely the person that I am and I get that strength 
from her. Mm-hmm. Um, as I got older and I reflected back, I did have sadness when I thought about it, though, mm-hmm. because um, one thing I didn't touch on was that um, after the abuse came out, mm-hmm. um, I found out that my mother had actually been raped and molested by my grandfather as well. So he had abused my mom as well. So mm-hmm. I went through a lot of anger when I found that out because I was thinking to myself, so my mom put me or allowed me go to go into a house with a monster, with a pedophile, right? Mm-hmm. Like, how could you do that to your child? Right? And then I imagine that added so much more pressure on you saying, I will not do the things that cause me to be hurt. Absolutely. And I will not be that person. And so that's that's an immense amount of pressure. Being a mom, I'm not a mom yet. I have a, mm-hmm. a dog, but I don't <laughs> think his emotions are nearly as complex as any of my children's will be. And I've spoken, we've spoken with several moms and the amount of things that we don't even know that we're going to do to cause damage is huge. And then there are people that do things to intentionally cause damage or that they know will cause damage that they disregard and say, well, it doesn't matter what damage I cause. This is what I want. And this is my, you know, whatever their, their motivation for that behavior might be. They know there's going to be ripples and they continue to do that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and I, and I've done, um, I've done so much work over the last few years and I just actually started reading this book and um, it's called the myth of normal by Gabor by Gabor Mate. And <laughs> as a parent, um, I had kind of, I had learned, I had come to a point where I gave myself grace as mm-hmm. a parent. Um, I was in a point, um, and this is many years after, I think my daughter, my oldest daughter was 16 and she mm-hmm. had suffered from her own mental illness issues. And I remember sitting in a social worker's office with my daughter who was, you know, there's social workers and my daughter at one end of the table. And here I am sitting at the other end of the table. And my daughter's yelling at me about mm. how I ruined her life and how my choices of it had negatively affected her. And she was right. hundred percent. Right. Mm. And, and I remember sitting there, you know, listening to her and you know, the, the concept came into my mind and I went, you're absolutely right. And all I can say is I did the best I can with the tools that I had. Mm. Right. And I, and I said in that moment, I gave myself that grace, right. Mm -hmm. To know that going through what I had going, had gone through in my life without any support or help, um, I really did the best I could. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it was, I was a mess as a parent, but I did the best I could. And I had given myself that grace. And then I read Gabor's book and I went back to the, oh, my God, I was such a terrible parent. Like, I mean, you, no. you can be the best parent in the world. You're going to read that book and you're going to go, oh, geez. <laughs> no, like, I mean, but it's an absolutely uh, amazing book because it really enforces the impact that parenthood has, all these things that we do and the influences that we have in a child's life. But coming back to that grace, um, when I gave myself that grace, I also realized, like, I walked out of that building after that meeting. And I realized that if I was going to give myself that grace, I had to give everybody else in my life that same grace. Hmm. Okay. I had to look at my mom and go, you know what? 
I'm giving my mom grace because my mom went through the same thing I did. Mm-hmm. So how can I hold her to a higher, you know, expectation than I'm holding myself? She didn't have any follow-up care. She was raped and molested by her father. She did the best she could. Mm-hmm. Um, my own dad, I was like, I don't know what his childhood was like growing up um, to make him the alcoholic that he was, mm-hmm. but maybe he was doing the best he could. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. So that you up- go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, we're both. Oh, go ahead. Um, so it was interesting that you brought up that uh, mental health care in the '80s was not great, and then even to rewind mental health care when they were twelve mm-hmm. was probably abysmal at best. Yeah, yeah. non-existent. I mean, definitely mm-hmm. not something that was ever talked about. You yeah. know, and and I even went so far as looking at my grandfather, mm-hmm. and that one was a tough one. But to go, you know what? I don't know what he went through in his childhood in his mm-hmm. life to create the monster that he became. But I have to give him grace and say, maybe he just did the best he could with the tools that he had. Mm-hmm. That's a tough one for a lot. I know it's a tough one for a lot yeah. of people, but I did that for me and not for him. Cause my grandfather had long passed when I came to that, you know, to mm-hmm. that, you know, realization. So well, that hits one of my big questions and forgiveness is something that Mandy and I talk a lot about because a lot of the people that we've had uh, conversations with, something has happened to them that was out of their control. And there's a lot of people that say that, you know, forgiveness will set you free. There's all sorts of cliche sayings, but forgiveness as far as emotional reprieve is something that a lot of people seek out. I personally have not yet forgiven my abuser and I'm getting married next week. So you think that I would have passed all of that, but there are days that I'm still angry at him. Mm-hmm. So being able to say, have you, have you forgiven the things that have happened to you or have you come to terms? What, what is your kind of your take on that part of things, the forgiveness I, aspect? I think um, what you said there hits, hits something because you're like, you're still mad. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Forgiving someone doesn't mean that you're not, that you're okay with what happened to you mm-hmm. and that you can't be mad. You know, I'm still mad at my mom. Sometimes I'm still mad at my grandmother, you know, because I think to myself, all of this couldn't have happened without my grandmother having some inkling of what happened. So even mm-hmm. this pedestal that I put her on, um, maybe she knew. You know, I'm, I can still be mad, but still forgive. Right. Mm -hmm. Because, and you know, like you hear, and you've probably said it, like not forgiving is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Right. (laughs) Like we hear that all the time. It's like you, me hanging on to my grandfather is gone. Mm -hmm. You know, he died a long time ago. Me hanging on to what he did only hurts me. It's not hurting Mm -hmm. him. You know, Mm -hmm. Me being angry at my mom, my dad's passed away. My grandmother's passed away. So, you know, three of the people that had this impact on my life have all passed away. So Mm -hmm. me hanging on to it is only impacting my life. And not just Mm -hmm. my life, it's impacting the lives of the people who I love, Mm -hmm. right? Because I'm carrying around this anger and this resentment and this, you know, I hate what happened to me. Yeah, I'm not happy with what happened to me, you know, but it happened and nothing I do or no matter how mad I get, it's not going to change that. 
So I have to release that for me. Mm-hmm. So it's okay to yeah. be mad. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, it, it peaks every once in a while. Um, but it's, it's interesting that everyone has a different take on it. Cause some people will say, I will never forgive that person for this. And some you know, if you talk to a, a teenager, I will never forgive my best mm. friend for something that seems really minimal, but for them, it's the entire world. Um, and I worked in child and adolescent psych for a little while, whereas the reasons that young women in high school would try to end their life, and I would say, that's the reason. Okay, I'm trying to wrap my head around a 15-year-old's perspective and know that maybe that boyfriend was their entire existence, right? And just being able to wrap our heads around other people's existence and other people's reasons for for holding on to things. And yeah, forgiveness is just a theme that comes up a lot um, with with her and I. And I love to hear other people's perspectives Mm -hmm. and how they've handled it and and all of that. And I, I know I've alluded to a past relationship a couple times. I'm safe. I'm happy. I'm loved <laughs> now. And yeah, that's, um, that's something that I can rest in to say that, uh, I know that a lot of times when people go from an unhealthy and toxic relationship, they will find another unhealthy and toxic relationship. And just like you said, you wanted to break that cycle with your, your daughters and your ability to be a good mother to them. I've thankfully broken that cycle with, um, with myself and my relationship. So just to not allude to the negative, there's a lot of positive Mm -hmm. happening. Um, but I, I also wanted to ask, we've talked about labels a little bit and I, um, wanted to know your take on, you, I believe said earlier, a victim of sexual abuse. And that phrase is big. And yeah. the word- I, I really can't believe I said it because I hate the word victim. <laughs> I, I have in my notes, victim yeah. in quotes from before yeah. we even started the conversation. So I'm glad that I heard you say that and we have the yeah. opportunity to talk about that. So share, go ahead. Yeah. I, um, I hate the word victim. And I, you know, I remember going to, this was three years ago. I went away to a five day immersive retreat where you do a lot of deep dive diving. Like I've never cried as hard as I did for five days there. And five day catharsis. every time, yeah. Every time someone said the word victim, it would trigger me because to Mm. me, victim meant someone who lost their power, right? Like it, I had no control I was a victim. Like it to me, it was just such a disempowering word. And it went against everything that I had fought so hard for in my life. Mm-hmm. But, you know, because I had overcompensated um, because of my dislike for that word, I had become this overbearing, overpowerful, like all in my masculine energy, like feminine energy. Don't even talk to me about it because I don't even know if that exists in my body at that point in my life. So I was like victim. I hated it. Um, I'm a little softer with myself in the word now because I think at that time, at the age of three and a half, I think I was a victim. Mm -hmm. You know, I had no control over what had happened to me at that point. Um, you know, I used to, I used to say instead of victim, I'd say an unwilling participant is what I would say. And I thought that doesn't give, it didn't fill 
what I really, the emotion that was behind what I was trying to, to say. And mm-hmm. I was an unwilling participant. It's like, no, that, that's not, um, that doesn't fill the void of the emotion that I was feeling. It's like at that time, like, three and a half, I was a victim. Um, mm-hmm. As I got older, um, you know, when I say a, a victim of domestic violence, mm-hmm. that has less, I, you know, I like the taste of that less in my mouth because I was like, mm-hmm. I made a lot of those decisions to stay in that unhealthy relationship um, mm-hmm. based on my feelings I had around myself. Mm-hmm. Um, because I didn't love myself. And I thought that that's what I deserved at the time because abuse yeah. had become such a natural occurrence in my life that I thought that that's just what I was destined to experience was a life full of mm-hmm. abuse. Um, but even then, you know, the, the word victim, you know, still doesn't, uh, doesn't hit me the way, the way I like mm-hmm. it when I was younger. Yeah. I would say I was a victim back then. Um, as I got older, I have a little less tolerance for that word because I hold myself a little more responsible than, than back then, if that makes any mm-hmm. sense. It does. And it's, it's one of those interesting things where I, I completely can resonate with your comment on that's what you felt like you had, that was what you deserved. And that's what this is, you know, again, the word normal comes to mind, but this is just what I can expect is, is the baseline and saying that, are you, for me, if when I was 20, I don't know, 27, um, was I a victim or was I aware and was I making a negative choice to stoop to that level? It's a very nuanced mm-hmm. label. It's, um, yes, at times there was some feelings of victimization. However, as an adult, we have, we like to think that we are fully functional and fully able to make our own decisions. And sometimes we just make years of negative decisions that affect our own perception of ourselves and what we deserve and what we should accept as love. And I think it's interesting that um, as a child, there your, your experience of love might have come from very few people and even strong love, like from, from your grandmother, even someone who's very strong, who loves you, it might've been in a very um, specific way. Mm-hmm. And so that that really affects your ability to receive and accept appropriate love because appropriate love feels smothering at some points mm-hmm. because it's unconditional. Wait, I didn't do anything to deserve this. I don't understand. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny because when you really look at it and when you start to dive in there, you, you question what is, what is the meaning that you attach to a word? Because it's just a word, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Victim is just a word. Right. It's kind of like the word judgment, like people, like if you say someone's judgmental and people are like, oh, I hate judgmental people. And it's like, we're all judgmental. We all are. Right. Like, I mean, that's what keeps us alive. Sometimes it is our judgment. So it's the meaning that we attach to the word. So for me, it was like really having to deep dive and go, what is the meaning I have attached to this word? Mm -hmm. Why have I attached that meaning? What do I need to release to be okay with that word. Right. Mm -hmm. And to me, like when I, uh, you know, I had attached powerlessness to that word, right. To Mm -hmm. me, that meant I had no power and I had fought so hard to get my power back that I thought if I said it or when I said it, I was taking away my power. Right. Mm -hmm. So it was like, I had to come to the rationalization that I'm just being triggered by my attachments to, to what that word is. So 
No, that's a good point. It's it was probably frustrating in a way to say, no, I'm not powerless. <laughs> and say, wait a minute, yeah. <laughs> kind of a snap. But yeah, that's labels are fascinating, and um, I think everybody who ha- comes in contact with us might label us in a way that's not accurate to us. We just don't know what those labels are. Sometimes there mm-hmm. are people that have had interactions with us, like in traffic, like the guy I honked at yesterday or someone in a grocery line who was really impatient behind me. You know, we all have perceptions of other people that may or may not be correct and that we slap labels on. And um, so thank you for uh, that. It's not quite a deep dive, but thank you for that kind of look at your perception of victim because I I wonder, again, working with individuals who have gone through a lot of things, I wonder, am I communicating with them in the way that they feel empowered by? And to say, a person who has been sexually abused, I feel like that's kind of my standard. And from your experience, what's been the most respectful way someone has spoken to you, not labeled you, but spoken to you about that label or that um, name, like a person who has been, like you are the person, not a victim of, like, is there a, is there a respectful way to? I think the most respectful, yeah, I think the most respectful thing that we can do um, interacting with anybody is be curious right? Mm. Curiosity is so, is such a powerful tool, right? So, you know, when, when I'm dealing with clients that I work with, um, you know, just saying, like asking them, so how is that for you? Mm -hmm. Right? Like, how is that experience for you? How do you feel about that experience? Like, take taking ourselves out, out of it, you know, and Mm -hmm. I always, you know, because I work with a lot of people that are, um, that have gone through similar experiences and mm-hmm. having them, you know, being able to say, cause sometimes we will, I'll take my own experiences. And this was hard for me was learning to set my own experiences aside because we bring our own experiences into our interactions with people. Right. Because I mean, we're, we're going through our filter. So sometimes looking through our filter on what we think someone else would have, ex- how they would have experienced it is the same way that we would feel about it. Right. Mm -hmm. So having someone say to me, so how was that for you? You know, like Mm -hmm. if I say, this is how my childhood was. So how was that for you? You know, and it gives Mm -hmm. me the voice to, to share it from, this is my experience of what my childhood was like, not their interpretation of what they think my childhood was like. Mm -hmm. So I think someone bringing curiosity into any, you know, alter, or I was gonna say altercation, but any conversation that you're having is is just super powerful. So that's what I love is when someone wants to know what my perspective was not pushing their perspective of what happened to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's amazing. And I think taking ourselves out and saying, my, my experience is different than every other experience, we could be in the room, at the same time, experiencing something, our experiences are still going to be so very different. Like a mm-hmm. concert, you have thousands of people in an arena. Every single person's experience is different. Mm-hmm. Even my yeah. sister, even my sister and I. I mean, we were in the same room when the abuse was happening. We both have different um, memories of what mm-hmm. happened and different feelings around what happened. So, you know, that's why mm-hmm. they say, you know, people can witness the same accident and have different stories. Mm-hmm. 
So it's, it's all coming from, you know, your take on it. So. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about your experience after the fact and um, your couple of interactions with social workers, psychologists from your perspective. And I know mental health treatment has changed so much since what you endured. What do you think from what you see happening now with children, adults, older, every, you know, there's no age limit on sexual abuse that happens mm -hmm. to men, women, children, adults at so many people. And what do you see that is missing most from mental health treatment in that area? I still don't think we talk about it enough. I mm. mean, it, it's so much has come out. Um, mm. But I still think there's so there's still so much stigma around it. Mm -hmm. Like when I, um, I can sit down um, with someone whether I'm waiting for, you know, waiting to catch a cab or whatever, like, you know, and start, you know, you have start a dialogue with people. And, you know, when I'm going out to do speaking engagements and I'll, they're, you know, what are you doing in town? Oh, I'm, I'm here to speak. Oh, what do you speak about? I go into my story. You almost mm -hmm. see people start to cringe and cave in on themselves because they're, yes. they're, they have such discomfort around it. Like uh -huh. it, it's still an uncomfortable subject for people. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, and I kind of, you know, and I will sit back and watch it and I kind of find it funny now, which I probably should, but, and, and, and then I'll bring it up to them and I'll say, you looked really uncomfortable with that topic. Can I ask you what makes you uncomfortable about it? Right. Because I want to, I want to number one, I want to bring awareness to it yeah. that they were bringing, you know, cause sometimes we we're not even aware that mm -hmm. we're uncomfortable with something like we may feel it in our body and not know what it is. So I like to bring that awareness and go, you know, you looked really uncomfortable, you know, and being aware of their body, their breathing, their, you know, their, whether their skin flushes, right. And, and just engaging in a conversation to try to find out why they're bothered by it. Mm -hmm. And, and just to start the dialogue, because I don't, I still don't think there's enough dialogue around. There's still mm -hmm. far too much stigma. And that's why, like, for me, it's so important to have the conversations to, to stand up okay. and say, Hey, you know, I, I dealt with this and, you know, I've dealt like it, we've come a long way. I would definitely say in the last decade, but mostly probably in the last five years where, mm -hmm. you know, people are able to say, Hey, I, my mental health is really important to me. You still get people that find that uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. You know, someone steps back and like, I think of Simone Biles in the Olympics, right. When she mm -hmm. said, I need to take a break because of my mental health. And the backlash that she received. And I thought, here is a young woman who is empowered enough and is aware enough of, of herself to be able to say, you know what, I need to put my self-care first. Mm -hmm. And people had an issue with that. Mm -hmm. So I think we still need to do so much work in having the conversations and putting health care and self-care and mental illness care, like it's got to become more to the forefront. So mm -hmm. no, absolutely. I think, gosh, there, as far as different decades, I think we can, we can pinpoint things in each decade of like, Oh, this got a little bit better here. Oh, but now I think mental health care is very, very normalized. And I think people saying, Hey, I'm in therapy is mm -hmm. so it's 
beautiful that people are able to say, there's nothing wrong. I'm just in therapy. I know Mm -hmm. someone who's in my life who she said, she's like, yeah, I just, I don't know, nothing happened, but I just felt like I needed to talk to someone. And she went to therapy for six months Mm -hmm. and she's like, so glad I did because I didn't know what else was under the surface. That's the whole point is that there's so much stuff underlying that, I mean, screw traditionalism. Every single human, if you're breathing, you need a therapist. We all need therapy. All of us. Like I am a music therapist and I need therapy, right? I provide a service to people and I need my own mental health and well-being taken care of by someone else. Mm -hmm. So there's just an awareness that I think a lot of people are realizing and maybe it was the pandemic, maybe it was, who knows, um, a lot of kind of civil and political unrest in the past Mm -hmm. decade and all this. Whatever reason, I think it's great that people are able to say, I need a little bit of support, but we still have a long way to go. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you about the stigma of specifically sexual abuse, where you are so much more likely to share a fundraiser for the SPCA. Again, dog mom, dog lover, Mm -hmm. love them. I will share that every single day. People are much more likely to share those types of fundraisers than, hey, here's something really hard and really uncomfortable that I want to talk about. And I'm also raising money to stop this sex trafficking madness that's happening. And it's just the comfort level that people have. And I kind of love that you, not that you wanted to make people feel uncomfortable, but you made people aware of their discomfort because that is so huge because people will sit in discomfort and then it will change and then they'll think about it. But if you talk about it when it's happening, it's so much more true and it's so much more open. So I I, I applaud you for that. So many people aren't. And I mean, and I like even say this, like up to three and a half years ago, I was so out of touch with my body. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was not in my body. Um, Mm -hmm. My body was not a place that I wanted to be in because of everything that had happened. So until I really got into my body and became aware of it, like my first full day at that, that retreat that I went to um, the next morning, you know, we went in and I was like, Oh my gosh, my ribs hurt so bad. Like what is going on? And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm breathing. Like it sounds so dumb, but it was like, I had been breathing to exist, not Mm -hmm. breathing to be present in my body. And I realized that when I started deep breathing and uh, really being aware of my body, I realized how much had been going on there that I had not been paying attention to. So that's why, like, I always like to, you know, point that out to someone if, you know, like I'm always watching and I spent a lot of time bartending in my life. Well, I'm a people watcher. I love watching people, but now I'm watching for different things. You know, I'm watching their eye movement. I'm watching their breathing. Like I'm just watching to see the emotion that's within them more than whether or not they've had too much to drink. (laughs) So yeah, people let out so much more than they realize too. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll make observations of people. I was like, Oh, that, that, and the, the other thing. And someone's sitting with me and they're like, do you know that person? Like, no, I'm just, looking at them, look at them. You can't see this. And you have that perception of other people and the way that their physical systems are exhibiting some sort of emotion that a lot of people can't pick up on. So that must be pretty cool. 
Yeah. And I mean, and that comes from self-awareness. Like I had to be aware of that within myself before I could really get in touch with other people's, you know, reactions. So it starts with you. So. Absolutely. No, I totally agree. Um, I had a whole, a whole other question about connection with a therapist, but I just feel like we'll get on a tangent and maybe that's for another episode. Because I could talk about that for 25 minutes. I'll give you a quick, I'll give you a quick little comment. Um, Before I made the decision to end my life, I went in to see a psychiatrist. I was like, I am hitting rock bottom. I know if I don't do something, I'm going to, you know, go over the edge. And I was about three sessions in with the psychiatrist. And uh, again, being in my masculine energy, I was like, look, just tell me what I need to do to fix this. (laughs) Right. I was channeling my grandmother. Right. I was like, just tell me what to do. I will do the work because that's what I know to do. And I said, what did you do to deal with your mental illness? And I remember her eyes glazing over and looking at me and going, well, Charlene, I've never personally experienced mental illness struggles. Mm. And I was so angry. And I thought, then how can you sit there and and tell me, yeah, I understand. I I understand how you feel because you don't. Because if you've Mm -hmm. never experienced it, there's a difference between reading it in a book and living it. I'm a very Mm -hmm. firm believer in that. So, I mean, when I started seeing a different counselor, I was like, hey, you need to tell me what your mental health history is before I know (laughs) if we're going to connect, right? Because unless unless we can connect because you really have been there, uh, you know, I, I struggled with that because I really believe it's, it's a, a personal journey that unless you've walked it, it's really hard to understand. So, uh, find a good counselor. Yeah. Well, we, we had an episode on therapy recently and one of the biggest things that I think people don't realize is that it's okay. If you don't feel like you connect with your therapist, that just might not be the best connection. That's okay. Like I've been fired by clients because it's not the best match, not because I'm incompetent or they are not able to open up. It's we did not jive as two humans and being able to say, you're allowed to say, Hey, I don't think this is working out. I'm going to find someone who I feel I vibe more with or connect more with. That's completely okay. And a lot of people say, well, this is the person that's, that had an appointment or this is the person that was available might not be the person for you. And that's okay. Yeah. I've I've turned down clients, right? Like I've had people come in and I'm Mm -hmm. like, no, I don't feel like number one, I don't feel like I'm a right fit for you. And I don't feel like we connect Yeah, because that's, that's what I would want, right. Is someone to, to say that to me. So yeah, you definitely need, because it's, it's like dating, right? Yes. This could be, (laughs) it could be, this could be a lifetime relationship. You could be, you know, committing to this person for life, right? Better or worse. So it's like, you want to make sure that you have that compatibility there. So, yeah, I love that you just said that because I felt people look at me when I say therapy is like dating. They're like, it's what are you? No, I'm like, no, you just, (laughs) the first date might be awkward. And then the second one might get better, but you have a couple and you figure it out. And that's so I just, I feel very validated (laughs) by you saying the same phrase that I say all the time. So thank you for that. Folks, if you want to get a hold of Charlene, I would absolutely recommend it. She is a light in this world. And it's, it's been a really awesome hour that we've had to share. Can I leave with one message? Yes. Okay. Cause I always, I never leave a podcast without saying this message. And that's, if you feel like you're in a space where you don't have anyone else, if you're feeling lost, alone, and you're feeling in the dark, um, please reach out to me on social media because um, I know what it feels like to feel alone and not have anybody there. And I may not be able to come and sit with you, but I will sit with you virtually. 
until you're ready to to rise up so just know you're never alone so that's all that's all there is can't really end on anything else than that so charlene thank you it's been wonderful